This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. We've got a roundtable today. My guests in the studio are Dr. Stephanie Mulder, who is Associate Professor of Art History and Middle Eastern Studies here at the University of Texas, Dr. David Stewart, who is Professor of Art History and Director of the Mesoamerican Center here at the University of Texas, and Deborah Train, who is a doctoral student in anthropology, where she specializes in Mayan ruins, also here at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thanks very much. Our topic today is antiquities in danger, or as UNESCO puts it, cultural heritage destruction. So I want to start off by asking what's probably a relatively broad question, but um, I think a lot of people are familiar with things like the World Heritage Project, national parks, things that are supposedly protected. So how much danger are antiquities in, for what reasons, and why? Well, I think there are a multitude of dangers out there. It's true that there are protections in the law books and ostensibly protections that are out there in various nation states where there are antiquities. But the reality is that laws can't always protect archaeological sites, nor the objects themselves once they're taken out of the ground. There's so many layers to this story and so many layers to the challenges that everyone faces in the study of this material. It's just daunting. And there are... Wars, of course, that are very much in the news today uh, in various parts of the world. Even in places, though, where there is relative stability politically and economically, antiquities are under threat. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I think the real issue is, well, certainly we could have stronger legislation, and there are now a number of different initiatives underway. There's a major one in Germany right now that's um, being put through, and right now in our own Congress... Um, There's also legislation, H.R. 1493, that has passed the House and is now going on to the Senate to prevent the import of antiquities from Syria during the current conflict. And there are already moratoriums on imports of antiquities from Iraq that had been in place since the 2003 Iraq invasion. But despite these types of import restrictions, we've seen uh, antiquities imports from Iraq go up. In some cases, the estimates are between about 300 and 1,000 percent. So it's clear that these types of restrictions are not entirely effective, but that doesn't mean that they're not important to put in place because they do, in fact, enable different parts of government to coordinate with each other in order to ensure that enforcement actually takes place. So the real key, I think, is enforcement. And, you know, enforcement on the ground in conflict zones, obviously, is a very challenging thing to do, impossible, really, I would say. Um, But in places that are not in conflict, that's actually something that I think actually can be addressed a little bit more directly. Deborah, do you want to add something? Yeah, and just uh, to touch on the actually the like types of of uh, risks that cultural heritage um, is under right now. In addition to war, I think some of the other things that uh, impact cultural heritage very negatively um, include neglect, where the local population is not invested in, in maintaining or or saving a particular archaeological site or archaeological materials. Uh, there's also intentional destruction, either through warfare or some other sort of destruction, like, for instance, um, the Buddhas of Bamiyam that were destroyed by the Taliban because they were not Muslim um, and they were not part of the um, sort of hegemonic culture, as well, and, and then looting, one of the biggest problems that we have right now, of people stealing things from archaeological sites or displacing archaeological materials to sell them for profit. 
Which raises a, a question. Um, you know, we were mentioning enforcement. To what degree is corruption among officials and turning a blind eye another issue that we have to be aware of? Certainly an issue in places where I've worked. Yeah, it depends. It's impossible to quantify, though. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's one of those things, uh, like you say, you can't quantify it, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And it's embroiled in every other kind of nefarious activity you might be able to think of in some of these places. Uh, I know for a fact, um, it's not just isolated where I work in, in Guatemala and in, in Mexico, but the antiquities trade is very much uh, one dimension of a much larger kind of network uh, with uh, narco trafficking and, and everything else. I mean, it, it's some, it's very hard to separate out these tendrils um, in, in the black market. And uh, I'm sure this part is true of criminal, criminal, larger criminal exactly. activity and criminal networks. Yeah. Wherever you have money involved, you're bound to have that sort of activity happening, that corruption. To what extent do ideologically driven conflicts, the, the Buddhas of Bamiyan came up, I mentioned those. I know, uh, Stephanie, we've discussed what ISIS is doing in Syria in, in a previous contest. To what extent does that drive some of this destruction? Or what can we do about people who believe that they're actually in the right to destroy these antiquities? Oh, what can we do about it? I'm not sure we can do a whole lot about that aspect of it. I mean, it's an interesting question, and I think it's one that really deserves some more rigorous academic study. But, um, you know, if we take the case of ISIS right now in Syria, which is, of course, in the news, and people have seen these videos that have gone around with them destroying, you know, Nineveh and other sites— this is a situation where you have a group that is, um, it's quite a funny situation because on the one hand, they're destroying antiquities, claiming that they're idolatrous, right? And they they take a inspiration in some sense from some traditions of Wahhabism and Salafi traditions within Islam that claim that any type of imagery is a threat to Muslims and to others. And so they destroy sites like this because they claim that they're a religious threat for people, that people might be tempted to worship them in place of God. So on the one hand, ISIS is claiming this. On the other hand, they're also looting archaeological sites of the very same types of objects and selling them on the black market and profiting from them. So there's a level of, obviously, a level of hypocrisy there. If they're if they're truly of pure hearts and minds religiously, you certainly wouldn't see those two activities coexisting. They're a pretty isolated case, I would say, within most of the Islamic world. The only other place where we've seen that type of activity happening is, of course, with the Taliban in Afghanistan to some degree. But the place where we really see that happening to a profound level is in Saudi Arabia itself, which by some estimates, the Saudi government has destroyed 95% of their heritage since 1985. And in that case, of course, they're also destroying Islamic monuments and Islamic sites. You know, the most famous is one of the Prophet Muhammad's wife's home was turned into a block of toilets, you know, things like this. Their ideological motivation is actually to wipe out anything that might possibly tempt Muslims to worship a holy person in place of God. So most of the world's Muslims have very happily coexisted with sites like this, with monuments like this, have um, worship at saint shrines, that holy people has been part of um, visitation of places like this, has been an integral part of Islamic tradition from the get-go. Um, and it's actually a really richly integrated part of Islamic life. So this is a, a very strong aberration from most of Islamic history, these types of traditions. We only see it really starting to arise with this kind of fervor in the 18th century. 
Speaking of the coexistence of people with the monuments, I, I know that in Mesoamerica, where these sites are also being looted, mostly for, again, sale and, and the financing of illegal activities, you know, people have been living with these things for thousands of years. How does this go over with the local population when these things are just being taken away? Well, it's surprising. I've seen it on many levels when working in the field uh, in Mexico and in Guatemala, Honduras. You have a lot of different kinds of communities, a lot of different people who are living among the ruins. You have descendants of the ancient people themselves, modern-day Maya, for example, who are growing corn at the base of ruined pyramids out in the countryside. You have uh, Ladinos who don't claim any indigenous heritage who are also right there you know, among these uh, ancient remains. You'd be surprised how disconnected even the Maya of today are from their heritage. We recognize these connections historically, linguistically, and ethnically. But of course, there, where education sometimes doesn't even exist, Mm -hmm. they have no recognition that, that these antiquities are their own, in a sense, right? That they are the descendants of the populations who built them. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think this has something to do with, um, from my experience working in Mesoamerica, is that the local governments tend to have a really good sort of conservation, consolidation uh, management uh, plan in place. Um, But more more or less, they they seem to be lacking a co-management strategy. So I think that the local population being a little bit uh, divorced from their own heritage is kind of like a symptom of um, how they are not allowed to manage their own heritage sites. That's in the hands of other people that are not them. That's absolutely true. Uh, the, the governments often will will claim that heritage is sort of a nation state, right? Um, the legacy of, of Mexico, the legacy of Guatemala. Right, right. In the communities, the indigenous communities are disconnected from that completely. Um, so the looting is coming from various sources, uh, and this is what makes it so complex. You have locals who might be mining a pyramid for building stone. That happens all the time. You have roads that are being built now throughout many of these areas. Again, using a very handy masonry pyramid as uh, the source for the, the road stone. Um, it's happening as we speak. Uh, and there's no control over this just because of the quantity of material. Mm-hmm. The nation of Mexico, the nation of Guatemala, no country, the United States included, cannot really, with the resources that are allocated at least, manage their cultural heritage. You know, we have so many sites in the United States that are being destroyed right and left, especially out in the western part of the country. It may not be because there's an ignorance on anyone's part. Uh, That's part of it, I guess. But there's just so much out there. There's bound to be a level of destruction that, that no one can really control. And that's sort of the sad part of all of this. But I would just add that I think that people are kind of hitting on something that I think is really key here, which is that education is really important. So mm. so most people, I think, need to really try to think a little bit about why heritage matters. It's not something that immediately probably comes to mind for most people. <laughs> why should you care about, you know, some statues in Iraq that get trashed by some crazy religious group right, over right. there, right? I mean, why should that matter in some way? So. And there are different answers to that, and they're not all unproblematic. I mean, there's UNESCO's sort of notion of universal heritage. And, of course, national uses of heritage have often been problematic as well. And so I think it's important to look critically at some of those, too. But 
the side that we can address as educators is to really come up with a good answer to that simple question of why should we care? Why should people care about heritage? Why should people care about antiquities? Because it's not necessarily inherent, that kind of a response. I think it is something that people have to think about a little bit, and especially in the context of the kind of warfare that I see in regions where I've worked, in Syria and Iraq, that question is very pressing for people when human lives are at stake. Why should we care about cultural heritage? I guess I've set myself up to answer that question. You, I, you took the words right out of my mouth, actually. <laughs> so, so, I mean, and I'll take a stab at it. I mean, it's a complicated question to answer, but I think that we should care first and foremost because this type of material culture really is, it does tell us who we are in some basic sense, right? So you can think of that in a global sense, you know. Material culture explains who we are in ways that textual sources, for example, can't. On the other hand, a lot of times archives are included within the context of cultural heritage as well. So that kind of umbrella framework of literally telling us who we are, perhaps in textual sources, or maybe in the case of Mesoamerican monuments, um, that are also literary in that way. These types of buildings explain the past to us. And I think that an understanding of the past is certainly something that most people can start to really wrap their heads around, even on the most basic level. I don't know. Do you want to answer well, Yeah, that? I mean, th- this opens up so many concerns. You know, heritage is something that is, you know, to use an academic uh, term, it's very multivocalic, right? There, <laughs> there are lots of heritages out there that people claim. We've just had a big debate in our country about the symbolism of the Confederate flag, mm-hmm. right? Right. And, and the claims of heritage about all of that. But I think as, as archaeologists and art historians and historians, we're reaching really deep here, you know, in looking at antiquities. Education is really key to make people connect with the ancient past. I mean, this is something that I think in the United States is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. In Europe, I think there's more of a sensitivity to it. But in the U.S., I mean, we have such a short memory, and there's a historical basis for that, right? Right. We have to kind of go the extra mile, I think, in our education on the university level and high schools and even earlier to connect people with this idea of a deeper past. I think that's a huge challenge, and I think we really have to think more about that. And it has to operate on kind of an international scale, you know, in each country, in each region has its own challenges. There's a really great quote from Michael Crichton, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It says something like, if you don't know history, you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know that you are part of a tree. It really kind of encapsulates why I think all of us really need we need to know that we're part of this tree, and cultural heritage plays a really pivotal role. You know, it's, it's very different to actually encounter an object or a building or a space. It's a profoundly different aesthetic, emotional, haptic experience than simply reading about history in a book. And I think anyone who has entered into a cathedral or seen a Maya pyramid or walked into a mosque um, has had that kind of experience. Yeah, I, I, I just on build on to build on that. Like I like to think about heritage as they're almost like land landmarks for memories, and they are truly cultural manifestations, or material manifestations of people's identities. And one way for to bring it down to people in North America, for instance, is to use just the landmarks that we have here, like the Alamo or the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, and. It's not just that they exist, but they're also seats for the American identity or the Texan identity or the Canadian identity. And 
for them to disappear, to be destroyed, is to lose that material manifestation of that identity. And, and it's not surprising that landmarks like that or objects like that are often targeted in war. That's a good it's, point. There's something abstract about it that's difficult to wrap your head around. I mean, and I think you're absolutely right, Deborah, that bringing in a concrete example is a really great way for people to think about, you know, when we talk about the elder marbles, for example, in my um, art history survey, we always say, you know, it's hard for them to really say, okay, so what, you know, they're in the British Museum, it's it's great, the whole world can see them, why should the Greeks care, they should be happy, more people are seeing them, you know. And then if I turn that question around and ask them, well, how would you feel if, you know, the torch of the Statue of Liberty was in China and the crown of the Statue of Liberty was in the British Museum and, um, you know, I don't know, her part of her cloak was in, you know, and I sort of give this type of an exclamation. They all look really shocked, right? Because imagining that monument, which is a beloved symbol of our highest ideals in this country, chopped up and shipped around the world, really brings that home in this visceral way. So I think it is really key to bring in um, concrete examples that people do identify with that are sort of seats, as you say, of their own memory, of their own identity when we're talking about this. And then I think that opens up that space for empathy for others and how they would have those similar types of attachments. Yeah, another good contemporary example is the Nazi campaign in London where they were trying to bomb St. Paul's Cathedral. Right. And the story goes that they were trying to bomb it, not because it was a particular strategic point, but because it was a symbol for London. And once that symbol was gone, it would be easier to subdue the English population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that just speaks to the power of heritage um, within any type of society. Right. Yep. It's a great example. A lot of our listeners are students high school students, college students, people who aren't necessarily professional historians but have a keen interest in history. For somebody who is concerned, recognizes the value, but is concerned, what practical steps can one do, particularly when we are talking about ruins or buried artifacts in the Syrian desert or the Las Vegasization of Mecca? And if, if, by the way, I'll just add for any listeners who haven't seen that, you should... Google current images of Mecca because they really do look like Las Vegas, mm-hmm. or the pyramids of Mesoamerica and the, and the royal tombs. They're far away. They're not necessarily tangible if you've never been there. What can one do to take action, raise awareness? Well, one thing you could do is you could uh, join our group, UT Antiquities Action. (laughs) We started a group on campus last fall um, that really is meant to embrace anyone in the community, faculty, students, staff, but also in the broader Austin community. Anyone who is interested is welcome to join us. We meet once a month, usually the last Wednesday of the month. And if you'd like to stay updated with that, you can join our Facebook page. Just look for us, Antiquities Action, on Facebook. And we have a pretty active Facebook page where anybody's welcome to post and join. And um, and we carry out actions. We went this spring to the offices of Representative Michael McCall to encourage him to vote for H.R. 1493. And that was, in fact, successful. Perhaps we paid a tiny, tiny part in that, <laughs> microscopic. But anyway, it was a really great That's thing great. to go over there and do that. And we have a whole bunch of other things planned as well for the fall, including possibly a conference. And um, we have a poster campaign, a number of other things that we're doing. So anyone in the community is welcome to do that if you'd like to get involved here in Austin. Or even if you'd just like to follow us on Facebook, we have all kinds of posts there all the time. There's another really great group called SAFE, Saving Antiquities for Everyone. And they're a terrific group that's actually designed exactly for this purpose. It's meant to really educate 
lay people who are perhaps don't have a background in archaeology or art history or, or antiquities or cultural heritage. And it's really meant for anybody who just simply cares, wants to learn more, wants to know how they can take action. And that's another really great group. UNESCO has a great campaign right now for um, young people called Unite for Heritage. Um, and that's a hashtag that you'll see quite a lot. That's not only for young people, but it's sort of targeted at a younger audience. But anyone, of course, can use that. So those are a few, I think, simple social media-based kinds of things, but also here in Austin, types of actions you could take that come to mind immediately. You have any other thoughts, Deborah? Uh, one way to get involved is to contact your local state historical commission as well. Um, the THC, for instance, in Texas has a lot of ways to get involved, to volunteer um, at their historic places and also even hang out in their excavations. Um, so basically, that those are great opportunities to get educated as well as to help out with your local state historical commission to help them protect their uh, historical and archaeological heritage. And perhaps another suggestion is to travel and travel responsibly. So, you know, learn about the ways in which you can benefit local populations in when you're doing cultural traveling, when you're going around visiting archaeological sites. Because the more people support local communities in responsible cultural tourism, uh, the more engaged they will be in the stewardship of that archaeological historical heritage. Yeah, it's, it's really hard for me to add to those wonderful suggestions. Uh, I would just generally say that for people who are listening who may be in high school, who are a bit younger than we are, uh, to engage with this whole dialogue about cultural preservation on many levels. I think we need much uh, younger blood in this effort to really educate, to spread the word in ways that we were just talking about. School groups, any kind of organization, social media, as, as had been mentioned, it's really the young people who can make the difference. There are so many ways to do this. It's, it's impossible to go through them all. But again, it's about education. It's about knowing what's going on on the ground, the destruction that's taking place, knowing about, you know, the art market to some degree and things that are for sale that, you know, might be in an art gallery somewhere in Houston or Dallas and questioning some of these things, right? Asking questions about where things come from. Don't just assume that the way things are are the way they should be. It's really an, an area where people can come together and make a real difference. I would also add to that um, that if anybody has questions, to please contact us. And because sometimes it is hard for us to reach out um, and get in contact with everybody who wants answers. And if high school students, anybody out there has questions, please feel free to shoot us an email. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're here and, and sometimes it is hard for us to climb down that ivory tower and uh, connect with <laughs> everybody. Uh, but yeah, if you, if you have questions that you need to answer, if you perhaps want somebody to come talk at your high school or just feel free to contact us. Is this a good time for me to add that we have 70,000 subscribers to this podcast? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can see the email there box. There are lots of really out there. <laughs> but it's it no but it's it's it, it is a great idea because i i think this is one of those areas where we can't actually connect you know in the state historical societies or or even amateur historians i think everybody has a a vested interest in this you know i i remember living in dc when they were proposing to build um 
Disney was proposing to build a theme park right next to the uh, battlefield at Manassas. You remember, <laughs> remember this? this? Yes. You know, and people got up in arms about it. You know, I mean, it, it because of the historical significance of the site. So it really isn't just an us them thing. I mean, we have this going on here too. Uh, looking at my watch, we're, pro- we're well over time for a single episode, but I want to thank all three of you for taking the time, especially Deborah, for whom it is now pushing the middle of the night in Turkey, for being with us. This has been a, a great discussion. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.